1: Gaslighting is a technique of manipulating others in order to gain control. Today's guest, Dr. Stephanie Sarkis, joins us to shed light on gaslighting and to offer strategies to help us cope and break free. Dr. Sarkis is a psychotherapist who is a senior contributor to Forbes, Psychology Today, and The Huffington Post. She is the best selling author of multiple books, including Gaslighting, Recognize Manipulative and Emotionally Abusive People, and Break Free. Welcome, Dr. Sarkis. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jen. Doctor, a lot of us are familiar with the term gaslighting, but I don't think we really understand what it means. So what is gaslighting and how does it work?
2: Well, gaslighting is a form of emotional abuse, which is a form of domestic violence. And the purpose of gaslighting is that the perpetrator tries to make the victim feel like they're going crazy and that they cannot trust their version of reality. And what that means is, is that the victim keeps relying on the perpetrator for their version of reality because they're told that they can't trust themselves and by that way the perpetrator isolates the person and also uh, increases the control over their life.
1: How does something like this even get started in a relationship?
2: It's a slow build-up so when you first have a relationship with someone that has this type of of abusive behavior initially there's a thing called love bombing which is where you meet someone and they tell you the best thing ever And they pressure you to move in right away, and it seems too good to be true, because it is. And that's called idealizing. Then you get into devaluing, which is once the the person knows that you're committed, they will ask things like, you know, are you 100% in? Uh, Is this, you know, what you want? Are we committed? Then they start bringing up things like like your appearance. Uh, They tell you that they think that your friends and family aren't good influences, they continually start picking at you and then eventually gets the devaluing process which is where they, you find that they have already had relationships on the side or they just leave all of a sudden. And if you leave, they will try to hoover you or suck you back into the relationship so they can get what's called narcissistic supply, uh, which is you know, they need constant attention and they don't want to let you out
1: of their grasp. So are most gaslighters narcissists? They can be.
2: Uh, you can also have gaslighters that learn this as a form of communication. They learn that, that from their parents and a dysfunctional family that this is how relationships go. So those people are more likely to seek help because they realize that, wait a second, I'm doing something in my relationships is not working well. However, if you have narcissistic personality disorder, you tend to view your behavior as fine and everyone else has a problem. So you're less likely to seek help for it.
1: What type of person is most likely to fall victim to a gaslighter? Is it someone who's a people pleaser?
2: It could be, but I think we're all prone to it. I think we all have levels where we are prone to someone manipulating us. I think when we're vulnerable, so if you have medical conditions and, uh, or you've gone through a period of grief, I think you're particularly vulnerable. I think people in helping professions, such as teachers, attorneys, medical professionals, therapists are more likely to become susceptible to this person because we tend to believe that people can change and we're more likely to believe in the good nature of people.
1: So you had mentioned that, you know, one type of a gaslighter is someone who just learned this dysfunctional behavior from his or her family relationships, but why else would someone do this? What's the end goal?
2: What people do it for is, is not only because, again, like like you mentioned, they learned it from their family of origin, but they also sometimes get a dopamine boost from controlling and manipulating people. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter, and it's a feel-good chemical. So we get that usually from petting our dog or cat, or playing with our kids, or doing a good job at work. But people that are, are sociopaths or that have this need for control get dopamine through controlling people and manipulating them. So they get a reward, a, a brain reward from doing this, which is kind of opposite of what majority of people do. We don't like having people feel bad. Uh, so it's something that the person will do purposely sometimes uh, because they need that sense of power and control. And, and like you said, you know, other people are different for their family members. But the bottom line is that, that either way, the behavior is abusive regardless of how they came to that behavior.
1: What's so interesting about this, you know, I think the only thing that I had really known about gaslighting was an old movie that was a thriller. It was, you know, a a Mm -hmm. suspense thriller type movie, but you never realize that this can be taking place in a daily interpersonal relationship.
2: Right. And the movie from the 1940s, the husband was turning down the gas lights in the home and making them dimmer, and the wife was saying, you know what, I think there's something wrong with the gas lights. I think they are being turned on. He goes, nope, Mm-mm. I think you need to get checked out. I think you're crazy. You've got problems. And that's exactly what, what this type of person does. They'll tell you that what you're seeing and hearing isn't what happened. They will hide valuable items on you, sentimental items like your wedding ring, jewelry, and tell you that you're irresponsible and you lost it. They'll tell you that you're irresponsible with money, even though there's been no signs of that, and they'll tell you that you need to sign all your assets and accounts over to them. Uh, So they will continually make you feel like you're going crazy. They'll tell you other people think that you're crazy, so you're less likely to go out and seek help because you're afraid that people are going to think that that you're the issue. And you're told you're the issue. You're told Mm -hmm. that if you only did X, Y, and Z, that they wouldn't do this behavior. But this is a pattern they've had over relationships. This is not the first relationship they've had where they've they've usually engaged this abusive behavior.
1: Can gaslighting be done on a bigger scale? So, for example, we hear so much today about you know, social media or media control, politicians, could mm-hmm. this be something that they can be doing to control all of us in our daily lives?
2: Oh, absolutely. We'll, you saw in 2016 that it's been proven that there was a Russian infiltration into Facebook and uh, in the political campaigns. So we see that this is on a global scale. You have dictators telling people that, that what they're and what they're hearing is incorrect, or they control the media. We certainly see it on socially a larger scale.
1: If this can happen to us on a daily basis in our personal relationships, but it can also happen on a grander scale, how do we start to recognize that this is even occurring?
2: Education is key. So we need to know on a global scale what do dictators do? They usually create an us and a them. They usually create some form of enemy that that is made up. They will uh, have uh, state-owned media. They will have uh, they will have people that will enforce these archaic guidelines for people. Um, they will use threats and, and force in order to get their way. In relationships, you have red flags. If something feels wrong, it probably is. One of the biggest signs a, on a first date with someone is how do they treat the staff? How do they treat people that they feel are, are uh, lesser than them? Do they start yelling at someone when they don't get their food done the right way? So that's a real tip-off. Look at how they treat other people. So we really need to know the red flags. Someone pushing too hard for commitment to begin the relationship, that's a red flag as well. And, again, trust your intuition. I think sometimes that we're more You we you talk about people-pleasing. I think we're less likely to walk away from someone, uh, like on a date, if we feel like they're being inappropriate because we don't want to look rude. Well, we need to start looking at what's in our own best interest. And in your best interest is to get away from this person as soon as possible because the more time you spend with this person, the more likely it is that you'll get sucked into their their gaslighting scheme.
1: And the problem is when your intuition is telling you or your critical thought is telling you that something's not right, you're faced with someone daily who's making you feel like you're crazy for having these thoughts.
2: Right. So it, it becomes kind of a, a paradoxical thing is that the more that you feel like you're not crazy, the more you're told you're crazy. So it's very difficult to, to get around that feeling of, wait a second, there's something really wrong and I need mean, you to do something about it. When someone says, you know what, nobody's going to believe you, you have nowhere to go. At that stage where you realize that something's being done, that these people have usually isolated you from friends and family, so you may feel like you have nowhere to go. And also, if they've, if they've practiced economic abuse, which is, again, you know, having a turn over your account, you may not have the resources available to leave. So, and we also, as people, have an issue with stop loss, which means that we've already invested time into this relationship, so we're hesitant to leave because of that time investment. So we're more likely to stay than leave because we've already given so much time. And people will blame themselves. They'll look up, they'll Google, what's wrong with me? A lot of people come into my therapy office saying, you know, why, what am I doing wrong that this person, you know, well, this relationship isn't working? And it turns out they're not doing anything wrong at all. The other person is making a concerted effort to gain control and power over them.
1: And so there would be, and I guess this is a very important distinction, that there are different degrees of gaslighting. There's someone who's just doing it on a smaller scale, all the way to that extremely manipulative person who just wants total control of you.
2: Right, and the end goal is always control and isolation, yes, but it can be to different degrees. The bottom line is if you feel like you're in a relationship like this, something feels wrong, consider leaving. One of the best things you can do is go no contact, which means blocking phone numbers, blocking emails, blocking their social media accounts. But if you have kids with someone, you can't always go low contact, no contact. So I, I recommend going low contact, which means having a pretty strict parenting plan that says exactly when the kids should be exchanged, Contact a family law attorney, some do pro bono work, uh, which means that they don't charge you for their services. So uh, consult a, a family law attorney to see what your rights are, what your children's rights are when you leave.
1: And I would think that when you do try to get away from someone who exhibits this type of behavior, they're going to tell you and everyone in your life that this was all your fault. They have no blame in any of this.
2: Right, and they also will send people to talk to you. So let's say you go no contact with someone. They'll send what are called flying monkeys, and they're named flying monkeys because flying monkeys sent messages for the Wicked Witch Wizard of Oz. And they'll come up to you and they'll say, you know, so-and-so really misses you. They really wish you were in their life again, and and they're so sad, and and I wish that you would help them and and talk with them again. You have to make it very clear with people that you are not going to talk about this person, that you are not going to entertain any talk of any messages that are being sent to you, because they will try doing that. They don't like losing their narcissistic supply. They don't like what they view as being abandoned. Um, so they will do whatever it takes to get you back. So you have to set really firm boundaries with the people in your life that you're not going to talk about this person or, or
3: listen to any messages sent from others.
1: Okay, so you've mentioned a few times the importance of getting away from this type of relationship. If someone is listening to us right now and that person is saying, oh my gosh, this is my life, what can he or she do to get started in this process?
2: First, be aware that when you plan to leave and when you're leaving can be the most lethal times in abusive relationships. So you have to be very careful and and look at safety. Many domestic violence shelters do have a safety advocate on staff and they can talk to you about the safest way to leave. Uh, Some people have had to leave in the middle of the night with with nothing with them just to get out of the situation. Um, So, also, make sure again that if you have kids with this person that uh, your kids are safe, that your pets are safe, because they will also use pets as a way to get revenge on you or they will use them as a way to have contact with you, so make sure you take your pets with you. Uh, Domestic violence shelters, some take pets, some don't, but there are several veterinarians that will take uh, pets for boarding at no charge until someone can find uh, housing for themselves and find a, a, a safe place to stay. So, uh, so the, the most important thing is to get out and there are various ways you can do that. But most importantly, consider your safety and also be careful if there are any firearms uh, in the home, too. And also uh, there are different. I would consult with an attorney and talk with him about how you can protect yourself you know, when you leave.
1: And you mentioned a few warning signs so that we don't even get into this situation. Are there any other warning signs that we should be paying attention to?
2: Someone that talks disparagingly about their ex or their family in the very beginning when you meet them, they use uh, negative language, they use words to talk about someone. Uh, they uh, focus a lot on their accomplishments but don't ask you anything about you. Uh, when they ask you how you're doing, it doesn't seem like there's any feeling behind it. It's just It's called cognitive empathy. They're saying, you know, how are you, you know what's going on as because they know that that's the way that you socialize with people but they don't have any feeling behind it they're doing it as a way to collect information they'll also ask you very intimate questions in the very beginning of relationships so what are your darkest fears what's your biggest regret and they're not doing that to build emotional intimacy they're doing it to collect ammunition so if you tell them about your relationship with your sister and how you wish it was better and the two of you don't talk very much if you get in an argument, the first thing they might say is, oh, well, no wonder your sister doesn't talk to you anymore. I totally understand. She thinks you're crazy, too. So they will also do something called trauma dumping, which is when they first meet you, they'll tell you all the terrible things that have happened to them. And, and everybody has trauma to some extent, but this is using trauma as a way to lure you in. And the reason why they're telling you all this very personal information right up front is they're trying to get you to reciprocate and talk about your trauma, and then they will use that as ammunition. So be very careful of someone that seems like they're acting too familiar right when they meet you.
1: It sounds like these people can do so much damage to our emotional and mental health. So if we are ever a victim of a gaslighter, how do we move forward from that?
2: It's very important first to go as low contact as possible or no contact and also contact a mental health professional because leaving this type of relationship, is not like a breakup where, you know, you have grief and, and you process and it takes a while to heal when you leave this type of relationship, you can become suicidal. You can have extreme feelings of anxiety and depression. So it's very important you talk to someone because this type of relationship is very difficult to leave. There's also a trauma bonding that happens. And what I mean by that is that when you have an abusive situation a relationship, your body produces adrenaline because that's a fight, flight, or freeze chemical, right? So we get a lot of adrenaline coming in that gets get their system all amped up. And then there's a period of reconciliation. The person may not say they're sorry because gaslighters usually don't apologize. But then there's a period where they're nice to you. And so then you get dopamine flooding in your system. So your brain gets kind of addicted to that pattern of adrenaline and dopamine. So it's very important to, to notice that this is a reaction your brain is having, that, that excitement in a relationship isn't always healthy. So sometimes those butterflies are red flags. So also, it's it's important to pay attention to that this, again, is not a standard breakup, that it would be really helpful for you to talk to someone through all the different feelings you have. And it's actually quite normal to feel suicidal. If you are feeling suicidal, it's very important to talk to a mental health professional or contact crisis services.
1: In addition to your website, stephaniesarkis.com, can you offer any other resources that might be of help?
2: Sure. I have a book coming out in July called Healing from Toxic Relationships, where it talks about 10 Steps. To getting free of this relationship and rebuilding your life because this type of person will dismantle even what you like and dislike. They will uh, turn family and friends against you. So it's really important that you have a guide to help you reestablish those relationships and, and gain your life back.
1: And I definitely want to have you come back on when that book comes out. So we will make that happen. And once again, the, the topic that we've been talking about today, Dr. Sarkis's book is Gaslighting, Recognize Manipulative and Emotionally Abusive People and Break Free. And once again, her website is stephaniesarkis.com. Doctor, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with?
2: It's really important to know that you can leave the. This- type of relationship and have relationships that are healthy and productive, and you can go on to have a happy life. Um, this by no means, and this type of relationship doesn't mean that you're going to be in this type of situation forever. You can rebuild, and you can have a life that has been better than the one you had before.
1: Dr. Sarkis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
3: Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. An
1: invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, but only if you make a good impression. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills. To learn more, visit cyacyl.com slash mediatraining.
4: Hello, doctor. Hi, business owner. Hey, there, freelancer. Has COVID affected your receivables? Of course, it has. And I'm sure you could probably use some professional help. A true test in choosing a top notch debt collection agency is their recovery rate and the amount of money collected by the agency for their clients. That's a great return on investment. Also, important today are the five star Google reviews about their personnel and services. Wouldn't you hire a collection agency with 830-plus national reviews, over 70% of which are from the debtors that the agency was able to collect funds from? That's great diplomacy. May I suggest Kinum, the diplomatic debt recovery firm? Our name comes from Kin Family, Num Numbers, family before numbers, people before profits. This is Vito Mazza. Reach me at 800- 850 5110.
1: Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Life is messy, there's no doubt about it. But according to today's guest, Cy Wakeman, being happy is not about cleaning up the mess around you, it's about learning how to move through obstacles more skillfully. She's here today to talk about how to change the level of contentment you feel in your life by learning to disconnect happiness from External Forces. Sai is an international leadership speaker, consultant, and founder of Reality-Based Leadership. Her new book is Life's Messy, Live Happy, Things Don't Have to Be Perfect for You to Be Content. Welcome, Sai. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited about our conversation. So Sai, things don't have
1: to be perfect. That is such great advice for so many of us. We strive for perfection, and when things don't go as planned, we can really unravel. Do you believe that perfection is a myth?
3: Absolutely a myth. And it's just unattainable. And so we're like chronically disappointing ourselves in ourselves and in others when we set that as a goal. And worse, we defer happiness. And unless we reflect on this, you know, what we do a lot is I'll be happy when... This is a better situation. I'll be happy when I retire or when my job is different. Or we spend so much of our time and energy trying to get the world in a state of perfection. And ah, then we can be happy. But unfortunately, we might find we've deferred our happiness so long that we've lost such valuable time. And the reality is, you could be happy right now if you just realize that life is going to be always, you know, messy and that the goal isn't perfection, but the goal can be knowing how to move through the mess, as you said, skillfully.
1: Yeah, you know, I am guilty of being this person for many years. I mean, for most of my life, I wanted everything to be so neat and tidy the way it was supposed to be. And it really took a major upheaval in my life for me to understand that things don't work out as they're, quote-unquote, supposed to be, and that you need to accept all of these changes
3: in order to learn from them and move forward. And we need to... um you know, not be chronically surprised when they come. I think our expectations, if we can remove from our life living with expectations and instead live with great expectancy that we just expect life will be full of wonderful surprises and we'll end up where we need to end up and we'll be good. But it's the expectations that get us externally focused, trying to keep all the plates spinning, trying to keep all the people happy, performing, and really abandoning ourselves so that we 're not abandoned by others, and when you're doing all this performing, you start to wonder, do people even like me for who I am because they don't even really know me, they just know you know this perfect little view I've presented to the world, and we start feeling really lonely because it's hard to connect with people when you aren't being honest about the many messy areas in your life. That's really where we connect as human beings.
1: I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned over the years from doing this work is that happiness is an inside job. Because, you know, I've met people who have stories that they would have every reason in the world to be miserable and to be unhappy. And yet they find joy despite their circumstances. And then you meet other people who have every reason to be happy, and yet they're miserable. And so uh, I agree with, you know, what you're saying.
3: It is an inside job. We
1: have to find it from within ourselves.
3: Absolutely true. So many of us outsource our well-being. We wake up in the morning and we go, how do I feel? Let me check the news. Oh, I feel unhappy. Instead of let me check myself, I'm happy. I believe the universe is kind. Now let me check the news. What can I do to help? It's very, very different. And it's proof that... If it was just external circumstances, then people who had better lives would be happier and people who didn't would be less happy. And it just does not play play out that way. Um, and it's also not about like toxic positivity or spiritual bypassing. Just I'm going to ignore the mess and, and pretend to be happy. It is truly finding some radical acceptance for some days are like that. And having um, skills that you can um, maintain kind of a spirit of contentment um, in the mess. Life happens in the mess. I used to, even when I did my inner work, I used to go, okay, I'm gonna not be in a relationship for a long time and I'm gonna do all my inner work and I'm gonna get myself great. And then I'm gonna go out and have a relationship and we won't have any issues. And that just never worked out that well. I couldn't go out in life and pass the test. No matter how hard I prepared, because part of going out in the mess is willing to be vulnerable and just saying, you know, when two or more people are brought together, we will have some messy mess to hold space for and to be curious about. And so instead of trying to get your life perfect, what if you cultivated curiosity and walked with curiosity, that's more helpful in the mess than, you know, um, trying to prepare so that when the mess happens, you'll be perfect. Like it's really shaping yourself so that you're more capable of being in the mask, but unaffected by the mess.
1: It all comes down to the way you choose to see it. I mean, I, I totally believe that this is a choice. And I love when you say there are two ways to go through each day, joy or misery. And at each experience, we need to make the choice. We have the power to make that
3: choice. We really do. And I want to be really clear that um, the choice is about how long we suffer. Pain is inevitable. We will have losses. We will have injury. We will have insult. We will have disappointment. Um, But pain is momentary. The suffering part is more about the story we create and how long we hold on to the pain. And that's where the choice is. Something can happen in your day. Let's say. Someone walked by me on the street and said something that I think most people would find um, kind of mean. That took one minute out of my day. And it was, it was you know, painful um, as I received it. Now, I have a choice of what I'm going to do with the next four hours of my day. Am I going to think about it consistently and question myself? And am I going to talk about it and tell other people about it? Like, that person maybe took a minute for me, but I'm the one that gave them the next four hours. And then I can even limit my pain. When someone says something that I could find insulting, I can say my choice is they can call me that, but I can decide whether that was meant for me. I can decide whether I received that. And once you get to that place, you start to really see where so much of the suffering you think you're enduring, you were self-creating.
1: Right. And it goes back to, like you said before, having expectations for the way things are supposed to be. You know, that person wasn't supposed to say something mean or this wasn't supposed to happen. And we get caught up in that.
3: Absolutely. A lot of us don't experience reality as it really is. We experience reality as the gap from how we wanted it to be. And we mourn the gap when, you know, the reality just is never as harsh as we imagine it and there are techniques that you can learn to move through life more skillfully and one of the techniques i teach a lot is just stop believing everything you think question your own story question your own thinking edit your story you know um let's say i'm standing in line at the dmv to renew my license and when i finally get to the counter the gentleman says we're closing for the day here's the time you could come back and we could help you all that's really happened is he's let me know When I can return to get my license renewed, that's it. My ego makes it into this person's trying to ruin my entire life and they are out to get me. And this is absolutely ridiculous and underserved throughout the government system. Well, now all of a sudden I'm downtrodden and live in the repressive system. Or I could just come back tomorrow when he told me to get my license renewed. That suffering part is optional. There's a little pain in having to come back, not my favorite. But the suffering we add to that is mind boggling at times when we take what happens and we add a story to it. And I find this with people at work all the time. I work a lot in healthcare and I'll go onto a unit and I'll say, Hey, how, how are you doing? And they're like, Oh my gosh, it's crazy. It's just, it's ridiculous. It's horrible. And, and like, no, really, I see you're busy and you're staffed for that level of busyness. So you're busy. And it's like, no, it's crazy. And I'm like, well, how did it go from busy to crazy? And people inevitably will say, like, I added that part. And I'm like, well, is it helpful? Be very careful to what you add to your reality every single day, because that's the part that chips away at your natural state of happiness.
1: So we're almost out of time, but very quickly, can you give us a daily practice that you recommend that can help us stay happy and positive?
3: One of my favorites has to do with gratitude. And a lot of us know how to practice gratitude by naming the things we're grateful for. So we're good at counting blessings. I encourage you in the book to count everything as a blessing, and that takes more work. So there's two lists everything that happens in my life today and the list of the things I'm grateful for and I look at the gap, what happens that I'm not yet willing to put on my gratitude list, that's what my growth is is something in my life I'm rejecting that I should be receiving that's here to teach me, is there something in my life that I don't have good perspective on I think it's disastrous but 10 years from now I'll probably see that it was in my favor, take what happened in your day and become grateful for it live with gratitude for all of it is one of the key practices that I put in the book that I think will be helpful.
1: The book is Life's Messy, Live Happy. Things don't have to be perfect for you to be content. If you'd like to get more information about Sai and her work, you can visit realitybasedleadership.com. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City.
1: Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Midlife is a time when you may be looking back at how you've lived your life and you may be thinking about what comes next. Are you happy in your current job or relationship? Are there things you always wanted to accomplish but never found the time? What will your next 20, 30, or even 40 years look like? Today's guest, Michael Clinton, author of the book, Roar into the Second Half of Your Life Before It's Too Late, says that after 50, we all can move loudly and proudly into a life that brings joy. Michael is a former president and publishing director of Hearst Magazines. He is also an author and photographer. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us.
5: Joan, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
1: Michael, so many of us, when we hit middle age we tend to think that the best is behind us and that there really isn't much to look forward to. And I know in my own life, everything that I'm doing now, the the radio show, the magazine, the brand, I created all of this when I was in my mid-40s after raising my family. So I'm a firm believer in everything that you say and teach and have written about. So why do you believe that the best is yet to come?
5: Well, you know, Joan, first of all, if you're 45 or 50 or 60 and you're healthy, You're going to have another 30, 35 years ahead of you. Uh, You could possibly live to be 90. And so you have the opportunity to have multiple careers, new relationships, new lifestyles. Um, You know, what I like to say is let's say you're wrapping up your first career after 30 years at 55, you can launch into an entirely new career that can last you another 20 plus years. So the possibilities are very different than the construct that was handed to us by our parents in the um, the, the days of, you know, retirement at 60 and then, you know, sort of the long slide. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a lot more to do and a lot more capabilities for people to experience in the next, you know, in the second half of their life.
1: And I really love this messaging because I know so many people. I have friends who hate their jobs, they really hate their lives. And all they keep saying is, oh, I just can't wait to retire. And and I say to them, but you want to wish away the next 10, 12 years of your life. Why not reinvent or recreate something that can take you, as you say, to the next 20, 30, maybe even 40 years?
5: Yeah, I think, you know, this whole notion, you know, ROAR, the book, is an acronym. And the first R is reimagining your life before others do it for you, whether it's circumstances or it's family or whatever the case may be. And I think that that's the key here. And I like to say, pivot out into a new world. I interviewed 40 amazing individuals. I call them the reimaginers people who completely changed their lives at, at midlife. Some of them were very unhappy in their jobs, as you said. Some were unhappy in their relationships. But they all found the path, and they tell their stories, which are quite, quite inspirational. And the book also has a lot of you know, practical advice and tips and, and strategies that you can use to really you know, move yourself forward.
1: So you mentioned reimagine yourself. Let's go through the O, the A, and the R.
5: Thank you. Uh, the O is you know own who you are own where you are at this point in your life. You know, the past is, you know, the past and you can't change it. So just own it. Own your health numbers, your financial well-being. What what kind of life do you want to be living and how much money do you need to do it? Own your strengths, your weaknesses, your failures. Um, And, uh, you know, also, I like to say, go to your last number, go to 90 and work backwards. What legacy have you left? What contribution have you made to the world? The A is act on what's next for you. And it's the introduction of a new concept called life layering to build a very rich life. And the final R is reassess your relationships because your family, your friends, your community, your work colleagues, they're all the ones who are going to facilitate and help you get to where you want to go in your, next, in your next chapter. So use those relationships, find your tribe, you know, take the people out of your life who are not supportive of you and, you know, enhance the people in your life who are supportive of where you want to go with your, your next dreams and goals.
1: And I think, Michael, as you could see by my brand and the work is around changing your attitude, that is because what I learned when I was in my 40s and after raising my family, this is all the result of a loss of self-esteem, trying to figure out what the next move is, then going through significant personal losses in my life. And at the heart of it for me was learning the possibilities that are, are out there for me and then believing that I could achieve them and, and I think once you do that, once you see what is possible and a belief that you can do it, it, it's unlimited. The sky's the limit for you.
5: Yeah, you know, one of the great things, Joan, that comes up a lot in the in conversation are people who are in their mid forties and that say, I wish I wish I could go back to school. I wish I could learn something else, but I don't have the money to do it. And one of the things which I've learned is an enormous amount of money out there for adult education, Pell Grants, Federal Grants. Many universities in certain states um, let um, people over 60, for example, go to college for free. And in the book, I interviewed an amazing woman named Stephanie, and she was a book editor, and at 53 years old, she decided she wanted to become a doctor, which has a whole host of you know steps that you have to take to get there. She ended up doing the homework and got all of her education funded. Uh, she's now 63. She's a doctor. And her story is a great one of, you know, if, you, if you're really driven and motivated to do something different, you will find the path. Uh, another guy who was a, a Wall Street banker who was very unhappy in that job went back to school and got a degree in adolescent education, and he now teaches math in the inner-city schools of New York City public school system. So there is a lot of uh, ways that people can get new education funded in midlife to spin them off into a new direction. It's just doing the work. It's making the commitment and doing the work.
1: You've had a a very successful career in publishing. Mm -hmm. What did you learn while you were climbing that ladder that led you to the beliefs that you have today?
5: You know, it's a a great question. You know, what I learned is... um, and I had some great mentors along the way. Is to always be authentic, to always be transparent, to always be supportive, to be known as a fair and um, you know a fair boss and a fair and a fair guy. Uh, but also be you know straightforward and honest with people. And I think that led me you know on a um, a really great path of growth and success. And what I also learned is I watched the world around me is you know when your time comes to take yourself out have the courage to take yourself out and to and to move into a new direction so when i made the decision it was time for me to step out of the day today i had a whole plan worked out as to what i was going to do next i I hate the word retire it's a very toxic word I, i like to use the word rewire you know we're always rewiring for the next chapter of our life and it never stops you know you rewire as you said joan when you you raise your family, and then you rewire them to your next chapter, and you'll rewire again at some point in the future, and, you know, we're always kind of rewiring to the next chapter of our lives, and I think that having that kind of mindset and philosophy will keep you positive and moving forward, and it takes courage, and it takes commitment, and it takes focus, but it is... Um, it leads to great life satisfaction.
1: Well, and they say when you're doing something that you love, you never work a day in your life. And sometimes I work seven days a week, 12, 14 hour days, and I don't feel like I'm working because I'm doing something that I love. And And Michael, we've been talking about having the belief that you can do it and have the courage that you can do it. But... You know, fear is really a driving force in so many people's lives. And what do you say to that person who is really afraid to make some type of a change?
5: Yeah, no, fear is real. And, you know, we all have to go deep into ourselves to ask, why am I fearful of a particular situation and a scenario? There's a tool that we use in business that I think you can use in your personal life, which is called the SWOT analysis. You know, really identifying your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunities, and your threats and, you know, fear falls into the threat sector. And sometimes, you know, when you when you really think about it and you break it down, you're not necessarily as fearful as you think you are. And also the fear may be something that you were carrying on from the past that is no longer relevant in your life anymore. So I think with these people that I interviewed in the book, and many had fear in change, they spent a good year plus thinking about, those kinds of things and how they how they break them down and how they broke them down, and so it can be done, but you once again you have to put in the work and the brain power to to, to face the fears and to face the other things that you that you may face. Well, I interviewed a psychologist in the book, and she said in midlife a lot of people do negative self talk because they say you know I should have done this, I could have done that, and you know her suggestion is that how to rid ourselves of that negative self-talk or those fears, or once again to surround yourself with the people who really value you and see the possibilities in your life, to be the, the person who is always looking and maintaining the positive reinforcement from the world around you. That gives you the confidence to, to break down fear and other kinds of emotions that might be getting in the way.
1: And you said that you had a plan for your next chapter in life. Do you think having a plan can help someone mitigate the fear?
5: Absolutely. You know, my my plan was, believe it or not, in my 60s, I decided to go back to school and get a master's degree at Columbia University, which was in nonprofit philanthropy because I'm really, I love that sector. Um, Obviously, I wanted to write this book that I just wrote. I'm a marathon runner, so I was planning my next marathon, although COVID got in the way of that. But, um, I think when I, when I stepped out, here's the key. We, we all sit in a, let's say a work seat, a professional seat, a career seat. And, you know, ultimately that seat may go away or you may leave that seat. Who are you when you leave that seat? And so I put in a lot of work to create an identity that was above and beyond that seat. And so. When I stepped out of my great seat that I had, my professional seat, um, I, I was very full. I, was not, I didn't get lost in a, in, a, in, a, in a past identity. And I think a plan to create a holistic you um, allows you to, to be able to make those smooth transitions as you rewire into the next chapters.
1: And I think reimagining yourself really is an important key, particularly for women, because so many of us get caught up in the identity of being someone's mother, someone's wife, Mm -hmm. and then we lose that possibility of who we are. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that reimagining yourself, that really is a key.
5: Yeah, I, I interviewed several women who were exactly in that stage of their life. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm just thinking of two of them off the top of my head. One was a single, a single mother who had um, triplets, I might add, <laughs> and the other was uh, a woman who was married and her children had grown up. And both made the decision that they had to sell the house that they raised their children in because they both said that that identity was they were mom in that house and they wanted to carve out their next identity. And so in both instances, one, the woman who was married moved to another city, uh, which she and her husband were always interested in, and the, the mother of triplets uh, sold the family house and took a smaller house in the same neighborhood. But it sort of al- allowed her to build out who she was going to become next. And you know, these were both women who were still in their early fifties, so had a really long, you know, run ahead of them in terms of who were they going to be post-child rearing. And you know, their kids were now in their twenties, and so now they were off on their own journey. So um, it was interesting to hear that that perspective from both of them.
1: I had taken a number of years off to devote myself to my family. I had left a successful, I had started off in public relations for a Fortune 500 company. Then I was an executive editor for a publishing company. And I I stayed home Mm -hmm. to devote myself to my family. But after doing that for a number of years, you really talk about the negative self-talk. I felt like, for lack of a better word, an idiot. I felt... Like, I wasn't even worthy of having a conversation with because I had lost that part of myself. So there really Mm -hmm. is a reimagining of yourself that must take place and then eliminating that negative self-talk that you mentioned.
5: Yeah, and I think that happens. You know, think about this. You know, in, in 1940, the average life expectancy was in the low 60s. And, you know, so people, once again, our parents, you know, they retired. And they didn't live much longer in general. And you know, obviously many people everybody had an individual story. But today the life expectancy is almost eighty. And so imagine that you are, you know, leaving your first job at sixty or sixty five. And the first year or two is a little novel, you know, because you're free and you're taking trips and you're seeing you're playing the proverbial golf game or whatever. But after a while that gets a little boring and, you know, all of a sudden you have to say, gee, you know, I've got 20 more years of living, I better be doing something that has bringing me value and purpose. And there are all sorts of things. You, you don't have to you know, work again if you don't want to, but you can certainly volunteer. You can go back to many classes you can do in school. You can you know, create um, new small businesses. And I think that, that what we're going to do, this generation is going to rewrite the script And the following generations are going to refine it. I think you're going to see this major renaissance of what it means to be, let's say, 50 to 90, you know, over the next decade or two. It's going to be an enormous amount of role models that are going to emerge. And the 40 people in this book are great examples of that.
1: Well, and I always joke with my friends, you know, you look at someone like Paul McCartney and you say, boy, that's not the grandpa we had, you know?
5: (laughs) Exactly. Mick Jagger.
0: Right.
5: (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. Well, you know, it's funny. I, you know, we have a, we have a, a president who's 78 years old. We have, you know, you know, we have actors and actresses and uh, Helen Mirren who's in her like, 70s who gets amazing roles. Uh, you know, I think you can continue to do what you do, um, you know, as you, I'd like to say, live longer uh, as opposed to get older because it's all about the positive language of living longer. You can do what you do for as long as you want. You know, government and corporations and institutions, you're going to have to really accommodate all of us because we're the people are going to change it. The people um, are going to demand that they stay in their jobs, stay in their roles if they choose to or start new things. And, you know, the Kauffman Foundation, which is in Kansas City, 26 percent of entrepreneurs in the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs are people 55 to 64 starting new businesses and new ideas. And so, you know, it's going to be a real, I think, movement happening in the next decade or so.
1: And I think it's an exciting time. And books like yours help give us the tools to live the type of life that we want to live.
5: Yes, thank you. Absolutely.
1: And that book is Roar into the Second Half of Your Life. If you'd like to get more information about Michael and his work, you can visit roarbymichaelclinton.com. Michael, in our final moments, What's the takeaway? What do you want to live, leave our listeners with?
5: You know, I want I want the takeaway to be the enormous amount of possibilities that one has when they get into their midlife and their 50s. You said it at the top of the conversation that life had passed you. You know, many people think that life has passed them by. What I would say is life is still ahead of you. You have a second chance. You have an opportunity to reclaim something. You have the ability to completely reimagine and reinvent yourself because you're going to have, you know, a long arc of life, assuming you keep your health, you know, you're healthy and you keep yourself healthy. And so I think it's an enormous amount of optimism that um, you should have about what you can do next and what might be possible in your life, whether it is work, lifestyle or even love.
1: Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I've I've really enjoyed this conversation because you are sharing everything that I believe. I am roaring into my second half, and I invite everyone else to join us. So thank you for being here.
5: Great to be with you, Joan. Thank you so much.
6: Do you feel like you spend more time in your car than in your house? Don't you deserve a comfortable, organized space in your home on wheels? Hi, I'm Gail Gruenberg, CPOCD, Chief Executive Organizer of Let's Get Organized, an award-winning professional organizing company serving clients who live with chronic disorganization. Even if you spend only one hour a day in your car, it should be a place where you feel calm and in control. There is a surprising amount of storage in a car. Maximizing that space and keeping it clear of clutter can keep you focused and safe. Safe on the road. In the glove compartment, keep documents pertaining to your car, like your insurance card and operations manual, if you have one. Stash a rain poncho, foil emergency blanket, and tire pressure gauge there as well. You can also stow a small bag of personal care essentials in there. The center console is a great place to keep snacks and small water bottles. A compartmentalized trunk organizer can corral jumper cables and a flashlight, reusable grocery bags, and kids' toys or sports equipment. Daily maintenance is key to an organized car. Keep a small garbage bag under your seat. At the end of each day, gather up food wrappers and other refuse and dispose of it all. Empty the car of anything that belongs in your house or office. Start the next day with a neat, clean, welcoming vehicle and feel like you can tackle the world. I'm Gail Gruenberg with Let's Get Organized. Working with you on-site or virtually, we help you make space for blessings. Call us at 201-613-2733 or visit our website, lgorganized.com.
1: The trick is to enjoy life. Don't wish away your days waiting for better ones ahead. I recently stumbled upon this quote by Marjorie Pay Hinkley. Marjorie's words got me to thinking about my life and how I've rushed most of it away, not being fully present or savoring the joy of any moment. Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Don't wish away your days waiting for better ones. When I was a teenager, I couldn't wait to grow up, so I could drink or go to college or even get married. When my children were infants and toddlers, I muddled through most days in anticipation of the evening when they would go to sleep, and I thought about when they would be older and more self-sufficient. When I was the caregiver for my parents, I struggled through those years frazzled and exhausted. When I held job positions that were unfulfilling, I wished for the day that I would find employment that made me happy. Looking back... I can't recall one period in my life in which I wasn't looking ahead to something different or better. The sad thing is that it took tremendous loss to wake me up, the loss of my marriage, the deaths of my parents and siblings, my children growing up and moving on with their lives. Now, I strive to live in the present moment. All those quotes about leaving the past behind and not worrying about the future are so true. When you live in the past or try to anticipate the future, you miss the here and now. So what can you do? When you're dealing with a challenge, look for the positive and learn from the experience. If you're caring for a sick loved one, treasure every minute because I promise you one day you would give anything to nurse that person again. If your children are driving you crazy, remember that sooner than you'll like, they will be moving out and starting their own lives. All the seemingly insignificant moments, both good and bad, are, as Paul Anka said, the times of your life. Enjoy them all. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative change your attitude change your life we believe that knowledge is power take what you've learned apply it and live your best life now remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation if you'd like more information visit our website CYA that stands for change your attitude change your life while on our site listen to past shows on demand read the digital magazine sign up for our mailing list and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.
0: The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications